Now turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Acts 3. Uh, we are uh, continuing the series in uh, the book of Acts, sort of volume 2 of Luke's uh, history of the church from, I don't know, 0 to 60 A.D. Um, those aren't precise, but it's close enough for our, uh, for our sort of points, um, for our purposes. Acts chapter 3, I think, um, I, think I uh, uh, truncated the, what was supposed to be in your bulletin. I'm not going to read the, read the entire chapter. We're only reading the first uh, ten verses of uh, Acts 3. So let me ask that you stand as we read God's Word together. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked uh, to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And entering the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work uh, in us through this, your word. Uh, use it to conform us into the image of Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, it was uh, the 1980 Winter Olympics. Um, the U.S. Uh, in Lake Placid, uh, New York, uh, the U.S., uh, the, the, greatly the underdog in all hockey events, always, that's just sort of a given. Uh, we know that um, the likelihood of competing in hockey is, is you know, kind of mediocre at best, although it's kind of leveled out now. Uh, but in 1980, we had to play uh, the Soviet Union uh, and they were uh, infinitely better than we are, um, were. Uh, and yet, uh, we beat them four to three. Um, the name Mike Aruzioni uh, may be familiar to some of you. That would be the only name I know from the entire uh, event. Uh, we call that the miracle on ice. Uh, it's the, the, the least likely, the, I mean, this, it shouldn't have happened against all odds. You know, the, the vastly underdog U.S. managed to, to defeat the favorite, really, to, to win it all, I think, um, in really their own sort of home sport um, with a bunch of, of amateurs. And uh, we call it, the mir- there's been a movie. The miracle on ice. Uh, it's amazing what we call a miracle these days. Uh, we use that word to describe anything that seems 
incredibly unlikely or particularly amazingly wonderful. If it's something that's sort of especially sort of beyond, I don't know, if it's just really, really cool, we'll call it a miracle. Um, That's really not what a miracle is. A miracle is God invading this world and working uh, outside of normal, natural events. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, called it uh, an interference with nature by a supernatural power. Uh, Or to quote, to steal from Dan Doriani, true miracles only occur when God intervenes with normal, natural events in order to reveal Himself and authenticate His servants and His gospel message. At the end of Acts 2, you and I were told, as these disciples were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer, that there were many signs and wonders being done in those days as evidence of the work of the Spirit, that Christ has indeed come, that this really is uh, the Gospel message from God Himself. And so immediately after that, you and I get an account of one of the signs and wonders that took place in this early church. As chapter 3 begins, Peter and John are on their way to the temple to pray. It's the ninth hour. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. They're going to stated afternoon prayer time. There was there was sort of scheduled prayer three times a day, uh, morning, afternoon, evening, and they're going to one of those stated uh, prayer meetings, if you will, at three o'clock in the afternoon in the temple. Does that strike you as odd? This is Peter and John, followers of Christ. Disciples, apostles, Christians going to the temple. The the place of, the home of Jewish religion. Now, they're, they're not going to sacrifice. They're going to prayer. But you get this, you get this glimpse, you get this taste, you get this sense that, that the early disciples didn't really see themselves as all that drastically different from Old Testament Judaism. In fact, the reality is they think of themselves as sort of... I don't mean this arrogantly. Don't, I, I'm not putting this thought in their heads. Don't run too far with it. But with better, as better Jews. Because in their minds, everything that the Old Testament anticipated is Christ. It's fulfilled in Him. And they're going, wait... We know that guy. We need to tell you about that guy. And so they're not drastically different from uh, the Jews. They don't see themselves as sort of this drastically different religion. Uh, They're willing to go join them in prayer in some room, outer room in the temple. But at the same time they're going to the temple... There's another man coming, except he is not walking. He's not taking himself there. Uh, He's being carried there. 
it seems to be his pattern that he's he daily goes out to this gate that's called the beautiful gate. Uh, he's lame. He can't walk. In fact, he's never walked in his entire life. And we're told in chapter 4 that he's over 40. So he's, he's old. And never, never used his legs. Never stood upright. Never had uh, any of that experience. We've seen this before. We saw this as we, when we preached through the book of Luke, which was, for, for some of you, were thinking, wait, when was that? It was before you got here. It was a long time ago. Um, but people with these kinds of diseases and disabilities are totally dependent on others for their care. He has three choices. One is he can beg. One is he could count on somebody especially generous, perhaps a distant relative or a neighbor or a friend who would be willing to to take him in and treat him as, as a member of the household, though I'm not sure that ever shows up in Scripture. Uh, his third option is to just die. Th- those are his only choices. But even to get to somewhere where he could beg, he needs somebody, a couple of somebodies apparently, willing to carry him there. And so this man has uh, presumably lived most of his life, certainly most of his adult life, uh, sitting outside of the temple asking for alms. Literally sitting outside crying out alms for the poor. One thing we noticed when we were in Italy this summer, um, there, there are a lot of places you can go in Italy and there are beggars a lot of places. But we noticed there's two things true about the places that the beggars tended to be. Number one, they were really, really crowded places. That makes sense. It's just a numbers game, right? The more people you put in one place, the more likely you are to find generous people. The second thing we noticed was they all, the places all had some religious significance. Religious people tend to be more generous. But also, as is the case here in Acts 3, the Jews going into the temple would have seen giving alms as a work that would gain God's favor. And so this man has chosen wisely. He's chosen a a wise spot to park himself. There's going to be a lot of people going in and out of this gate at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because that's prayer time. And these are religious people and they're more likely to give, they're more likely um, to, to be generous with their possessions. And they also are more likely on their way in, on their way out to think, if I just, if I toss this guy a coin then maybe God will notice that. Maybe God will see that. And so this man is sitting outside the gate, relying on the, the kindness and generosity of others at the very moment when Peter and John are walking in the same gate. 
Put yourself in this guy's shoes for a second. Probably didn't have shoes. Didn't need them. Wasn't walking anywhere. But put yourself in his place for just a second. It's possible people didn't really talk to him. It's possible that as he sat there crying alms for the poor, they might at best kind of toss something into his hat, into a, a cloth he had spread out in front of his lap. I don't know, a bucket, a bowl, something, whatever sort of container he had. Maybe they sort of tossed something, mumbled something his direction as they walked into the temple. But, but it's highly unlikely that people really talk to him. It's less likely that people really looked at him and noticed him. We've all had that feeling of like looking at something and not really looking at something. I waved at somebody not too long ago that I was sure was waving at me. There was somebody behind me they were waving at. Yeah, we, and and then, they kind of, then she kind of waved like, you know, at me too. And I was like, yeah, I was that guy. I mean, people saw him, but did they look at him? And And then... As Peter turns and stops in front of him and actually calls for his gaze, look at us. At that point, his heart had to double in speed, right? This guy noticed me, saw me, actually wants me to look at him. He's going to throw money at me. And he said, look at us. And then the very next words out of Peter's mouth, silver and gold. The excitement level had to go through the roof. Right? I mean, I just imagine this guy sitting here going, you made me look at you. You've just announced silver and gold. Now, I don't mean to imply that Peter paused there to make this guy think something was going to happen. And it was. But you know how fast you can react emotionally to things like that. Your hopes can get all worked up in an instant. Silver and gold, I don't have. And the man had to just come crashing back. Like, I almost imagine him already forming the words, then why did you bother talking to me? Like, I would already be lashing out in anger at this guy. Are you trying to be mean? Is that really what you intended to do? You've got to ride this guy's emotional roller coaster. He's a nobody who suddenly gets somebody's attention. Look at me, gold and silver, silver and gold. I don't have any of that. And this man's emotions just collapse. His heart just fell into his, the pit of his stomach. But the reality is, what Peter has is what this man really needs. What Peter has is something this man needs and has decided long ago he's never going to have. He's unable to heal himself, he's unable to get up and walk. And there's absolutely nothing he could do about it. 
He decided long ago, he figured long ago that the hopes and dreams of walking, he just he doesn't have them anymore. They're gone. He's been like this for over 40 years, his entire life. And he wasn't expecting what he got. But Matthew, Mark, Luke all sort of remind us with God all things are possible. And Peter says, get up and walk. And hands him, offers him his hand. And the guy took it. Like, why would the guy 40 plus years of never walking, giving up all hope, Peter says, what I have I give you, get up and walk, offers his hand, and the guy took his hand. And in an instant... He didn't have muscles. He didn't have bone strength at all. The legs had never, ever borne weight. I was 10, 8 to 10, somewhere in that range. Broke some toes in my foot playing hide and seek at the beach. Had to get a cast. Cast went from just behind my toes, past my ankle, up to my knee, which I thought was a lot of overkill as a 10-year-old for broken toes. They were kind enough to put one of those little rubber stopper things underneath so I could still walk and play and climb trees and do that stuff. I, I, I think I wore the cast three or four weeks. It could have been six. I don't remember. What I do remember is my left calf being noticeably smaller than my right calf when the cast came off. Just, just a few weeks of not using it. And, and little 10-year-old me is going, I mean, they're not much anyway, but my goodness, it's gone. This guy had none of that. And in, in an instant, immediately we're told, his ankles locked in place, his knees worked, his calves, his quads, everything formed and shaped and tightened up and did exactly what it was supposed to do. And a guy who had never even stood was walking. A guy who had never walked was leaping. In a moment, in just an instant. But I want you to notice something. Peter didn't heal this guy. Peter didn't heal him. Jesus did. Because you notice what Peter says in verse 6. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. See, for you and me, a name is just a word we use to, to distinguish you from other people in the room. And in the event that multiple people have the same name, you find ways to work around it. Somebody gets switched to a last name. Somebody gets switched to a double name. Perhaps you switch to a K and a C just to distinguish the two of you. 
Because that might happen sometimes. Just choose the letter that separates Erica from Erica. That's not the case with God. With God, His name actually has as much to do with His character and His power and His authority as it does with anything else. It's not just a name. It's not just the words you use to, to get your attention. It actually refers to His power and authority and His character. And notice what Peter says here in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That you do know. I had to say this at youth group. I'll say it again at youth group. You do know Christ is not a last name. Christ is a title. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's not first and last name Jesus Christ. It's, it's Jesus, earthly name, like Joshua. It's a form of Joshua. The Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one of Nazareth. To, you know, remind you all that's the one that you nailed to a cross. To remind you all that we're talking about somebody who's fully God and fully man. You get, you get his, his, the name of, of the human name Jesus and the divine name Christ, essentially. And Peter calls attention to the fact that he's offering healing in the name of the God-man, in the name of the second person of the Trinity who's taken on flesh in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Peter points to our Savior as fully human and fully divine, as the only one with the power and the authority to heal this lame man. Where does that power come from? See, here's what happened in that instance, in that moment. The world to come invaded this one. That's what happens. When, when this man is healed, the world that is yet to come invaded the one in which you and I are living. See, that's the world where healing is. That's the world where sin no longer rules and reigns. That's the world where there are no lame people. There are no, is no sickness. There is no disease. There's no such thing as cancer. There's no such thing as, as Alzheimer's. There's no such thing as, as any of that. There's no such thing as sickness or disease or decay or death. Those things go away in the world to come. But they mark this world. You and I live in a world marked by death and decay and weakness and failure and sin and the effects of sin. This man is lame because of sin. Not because of his sin. Not because of a sin. But because of sin. But because sin is real. Because sin exists. Because we live in a fallen, broken world. And when the natural order of this world is reversed, it's because the new world has invaded this one. And this man stands, runs, leaps. Because there's been an invasion of this world by the world to come. And, and Luke goes out of his way 
in verses 7 and 8 to, to show us just how healed this man was. I mean, just to show the totality and completeness of the healing. I mean, just listen to verses 7 and 8. Um, he stood up. Immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood, he hops up from the ground. He doesn't just sort of, he doesn't get up the way we get up when our knees creak. We sit down and when it's time to get up, sometimes it takes us a second. The, the knees are creaking, the ankles feeling weak, the bones aren't doing what they're supposed to do. It takes us a second. Not him, this guy who's never stood, never walked, has no idea what balance is, hops up from the ground walks and leaps without falling over. That's total, complete healing in every way possible. And this man is fully and completely healed. But there's more. Notice where he goes. He links arms with Peter and John and goes into the temple. He's never been there before. He's never been allowed in there before. Because of his inability to walk, because of his lameness, because of his disability, he was considered unclean. He's not allowed in the... He sat at the gate. He perhaps got a glimpse every now and then. He heard people talking as they walked out, no doubt. But he's never been inside before. He's never been allowed in before. And now that he... In fact, Old Testament law says if, if this were a priest, if this was somebody who was in line to be the priest and yet was because of sickness or disease, couldn't he wasn't allowed to perform his duties as a priest. And this guy gets to go into the temple for the first time in his life. And he does so with God's praises on his lips. He does so leaping for joy and gratitude and, and singing and exalting and, and proclaiming the glories and praises of God who has healed him. And the masses knew it in verses 9 and 10. Literally, Luke recounts the first few verses for us to remind us, hey, but this time it's from the observation of the outsiders. Hey, that's the guy that used to sit out there at the beautiful gate begging for alms because he couldn't walk. They literally recount for us. They're admitting we know exactly who this guy is. It's confirmation that that Peter and John didn't pull some fast one on him. That it's not some, you know, hocus pocus magic sorcery make it look like. That really is him. And now he's walking and leaping and praising God. Why? Because the world to come has invaded this one. But that's not the only invasion of the next world in this passage. I cheated a little. I stopped at verse 10. Technically, 
All one context is 3.1 to 4.22. It's all one long, continuous story. Look down at verse 16 of chapter 3 for just a second. And listen to what Peter says. His name, that's Jesus. By faith in His name, Jesus still, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Do you see it? Peter's suggesting to us this man now has faith in Christ. This man, it appears, has been converted. This man just got saved. We're Presbyterian. Careful. But that's what's happened. It's not just... He needed faith in Christ in order to be healed. It's not just that his body has been healed, but his heart of stone has been taken and replaced with a heart of flesh. He's turned in faith to Christ. He's trusting in Him alone for His salvation. No, we're not told that in the first ten verses. Luke seems to sort of be keeping that from us on purpose. And we'll see more of that later. Lord willing. But it's through faith in Christ. It's through faith and trust in the name, the power, the authority, the character of Christ that this man is healed. And besides, as he's going into the temple, he's praising God. Something he wasn't doing before. He was not a member of the covenant community already. We know this. We know that he wasn't previously, prior to this healing, we know that he was not a member of the covenant community. How do we know? Because Luke 2 ends with, Believers had everything in common. Nobody had any needs. But this man has needs, which means he was not part of their group. He was not part of the church. He was not a believer yet. And so in this moment, in this healing, in this event, not only is he healed physically, but he's healed spiritually and brought to saving faith in Christ. Just as healing the lame man was an invasion of this world by the world to come, so too is the salvation of a sinner. God reaching into time and space, bringing us to saving faith in Christ. Let me make just two observations, I guess, by way of application The first question is, why don't we see more of this today? Or, to ask it a different way, shouldn't we be seeing this all over the place? Uh, We don't have time for a long, full dissertation answer. I'll spare you that sort of uh, lengthy response. But let me make this observation. Even when Christ walked the earth, He didn't heal everybody. Lazarus came out of the tomb, but eventually He went back. He didn't stay out permanently. He didn't stay out for the rest of eternity. It wasn't the primary aim of Jesus' first earthly ministry to bring healing to anyone and everyone. Because He could have. 
He could have eliminated all sickness, all disease, all leprosy, all cancer, all whatever, while he was on the earth the first time. He could have, just by the wave of his hand, gotten rid of all of it. And he doesn't. Paul later will be able to heal people. There there are instances of the Apostle Paul healing people. And yet he tells Timothy, I left Trophimus in Miletus sick. What? Why didn't you heal him and then leave? Wouldn't that make more sense? Physical healing isn't the primary aim, the primary focus of Jesus' earthly ministry the first time around. You and I live in a world marked by decay and death because sin is a reality in this world. And it's not until we're in the next world, it's not until Christ returns and brings that world here and establishes His kingdom fully and finally and completely in all its totality that we get this kind of healing. In fact, we're told, we made this observation earlier, at the end of chapter 2, these, uh, the healing like this is called a sign and a wonder. Signs point to things. And this kind of healing points to a world that's yet to come. A world that we long for and anticipate. So while certainly God can do what God will do, He can heal if He so desires. It seems to be the pattern, even in Scripture, that these kinds of miracles are used to affirm and attest to the reality of the Gospel message. I would expect that if and where this occurs today, it would be in places of deep darkness, stark opposition to Christ, where the Gospel is being proclaimed, perhaps even for the first time, and accompanied by more signs and wonders to attest to the truthfulness of the Gospel. A second application. This man's physical healing is actually a perfect reflection of spiritual healing as well. He's held under the the power and the effects of sin itself. He can't heal himself. There's nothing he can do to make himself better. He must look in faith to Christ for his healing. Deliverance is all of God's grace. God's under no obligation to heal that man. And salvation is total, complete, and immediate. If that describes you, if that's your hope, if you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, you need to be encouraged by this man's physical healing because it reflects what you have spiritually. A salvation that is all of God's grace, that we don't earn, that we don't don't merit, that we don't gain God's favor somehow, but we receive by looking to Christ in faith. And it's a salvation that is total and complete and immediate. And you need to be encouraged and comforted by that. But if you're trying to save yourself, if you're 
trying to earn your salvation, if you're trying to, to gain God's favor by your obedience, this man serves as a model that says you can't save yourself. Look to Christ. Run to the cross. There and there alone, find forgiveness. Turn in faith to Christ. Repent of sin. And look to Him for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this great picture of Your power and authority and rule in uh, this creation that You can uh, rule and overrule even contrary to nature itself and, and break the world that is yet to come into this one. And we thank You for the picture that this is of our own salvation. Totally and, depend, totally and completely dependent on, on Your grace to see us in our need, to reach out to us and pull us up and give us new hearts, give us new lives so that we might respond by leaping and praising You. And we pray that You would grow in us greater joy and gratitude for our salvation that we can't help but sing Your praises. We pray all this in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen.